Chapter Three of Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Five, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter Three: The Tennessee Line. In the state of Kentucky, the long game of political intrigue came to an end as the autumn of 1861 approached. By a change almost as sudden as a stage transformation scene, the beginning of September brought a general military activity and a state of qualified civil war. This change grew naturally out of the military condition, which was no longer compatible with the uncertain and expectant attitude the state had hitherto maintained. The notes of preparation for Fremont's campaign down the Mississippi could not be ignored. Cairo had become a great military post, giving the federal forces who held it a strategical advantage both for defense and offense, against which the Confederates had no corresponding foothold on the great river. The first defensive work of the latter was Fort Pillow, 215 miles below, armed with only 1232-pounders. To oppose a more formidable resistance to Fremont's descent was of vital importance, which General Polk's West Point education enabled him to realize. But the Mississippi, with its generally level banks, afforded relatively few points capable of effective defense. The one most favorable to the Confederate needs was at Columbus in the state of Kentucky, 18 miles below Cairo on a high bluff commanding the river for about five miles. Both the Union and Confederate commanders coveted this position for its natural advantages were such that when fully fortified it became familiarly known as the Gibraltar of the West. So far, through the neutrality policy of Kentucky, it had remained unappropriated by either side. On the first day of September, General Polk, the rebel commander at Memphis, sent a messenger to Governor Magoffin to obtain confidential information about the future plans and policy of the Southern Party in Kentucky explaining his desire to be ahead of the enemy in occupying Columbus and Paducah. Buckner was in Richmond, proposing to the Confederate authorities certain military movements in Kentucky in advance of the action of her governor. On September 3rd, they promised him, as definitely as they could, countenance and assistance in his scheme and soon after he accepted a brigadier general's commission from Jefferson Davis. Before his return to the West, General Polk had initiated the rebel invasion of Kentucky. Whether upon information from Governor McGoffin or elsewhere, Polk ordered General Gideon J. Pillow with his detachment of 6,000 men, which the abandoned Missouri campaign left idle, to cross the river from New Madrid and occupied the town of Columbus. 
The Confederate movement created a flurry in neutrality circles. Numerous protests went both to Polk and the Richmond authorities, and Governor Harris hastened to assure Governor McGoffin that he was in entire ignorance of it and had appealed to Jefferson Davis to order the troops withdrawn. Even the rebel Secretary of War was mystified by the report and directed Polk to order the troops withdrawn from Kentucky. Jefferson Davis, however, either with prior knowledge or with a truer instinct, telegraphed to Polk, the necessity justifies the action. In his letter to Davis, General Polk strongly argued the propriety of his course. I believe if we could have found a respectable pretext, it would have been better to have seized this place some months ago, as I am convinced we had more friends then in Kentucky than we have had since, and every hour's delay made against us. Kentucky was fast melting away under the influence of the Lincoln government. He had little need to urge this view. Jefferson Davis wrote him, We cannot permit the indeterminate quantities, the political elements, to control our action in cases of military necessity. And to Governor Harris, security to Tennessee and other parts of the Confederacy is the primary object. To this, all else must give way. Further, to strengthen and consolidate the important military enterprises thus begun, Jefferson Davis now adopted a recommendation of Polk that they should be combined from west to east to cross the Mississippi Valley and placed under the direction of one head, and that head should have large discretionary powers. Such a position is one of very great responsibility, involving and requiring large experience and extensive military knowledge, and I know of no one so well equal to that task as our friend General Albert S. Johnston. Johnston, with the rank of general, was duly assigned on September 10 to the command of Department No. 2, covering in general the states of Tennessee, Arkansas, part of Mississippi, Kentucky, Missouri, Kansas, and the Indian Territory. Proceeding at once to Nashville and conferring with the local authorities, Johnston wrote back to Richmond under date of September 16th, so far from yielding to the demand for the withdrawal of our troops, I have determined to occupy Bowling Green at once. I design tomorrow, which is the earliest practicable moment, to take possession of Bowling Green with 5,000 troops and prepare to support the movement with such force as circumstances may indicate and the means at my command may allow. The movement was promptly carried out. Buckner was put in command of the expedition and seizing several railroad trains. He moved forward to Bowling Green on the morning of the 18th, having sent ahead 500 men to occupy Munfordville and issuing the usual proclamation that his invasion was a measure of defense. Meanwhile, the third column of invaders entered eastern Kentucky through Cumberland Gap. Brigadier General Zola Coffer had eight or 10,000 men under his command in eastern Tennessee, but much scattered and badly armed and supplied. 
By his active supervision he somewhat improved the organization of his forces and acquainted himself with the intricate topography of the mountain region he was in during the month of August. Prompted probably from Kentucky, he was ready early in September to join in the combined movement into that state. About the 10th, he advanced through Cumberland Gap with six regiments to Cumberland Ford and began planning further aggressive movements against the small Union force, principally home guards, which had been collected and organized at Camp Dick Robinson. The strong Union legislature, which Kentucky elected in August, met in Frankfort, the capital, on the 2nd of September. Polk, Having securely established himself at Columbus, notified the governor of his presence and offered as his only excuse the alleged intention of the federal troops to occupy it. The legislature, not deeming the excuse sufficient, passed a joint resolution instructing the governor to inform those concerned that Kentucky expects the Confederate or Tennessee troops to be withdrawn from her soil unconditionally. The governor vetoed the resolution on the ground that it did not also embrace the Union troops, but the legislature passed it over his veto. Governor McGoffin now issued his proclamation as directed. Polk and Jefferson Davis replied that the Confederate Army would withdraw if the Union Army would do the same. To this, the legislature responded with another joint resolution that the conditions prescribed were an insult to the dignity of the state to which Kentucky cannot listen without dishonor and that the invaders must be expelled. The resolution further required General Robert Anderson to take instant command with authority to call out a volunteer force in all of which the governor was required to lend his aid. Kentucky was thus officially taken out of her false attitude of neutrality and placed in active cooperation with the federal government to maintain the Union. Every day increased the strength and zeal of her assistance. A little later in the session, a law was enacted declaring enlistments under the Confederate flag a misdemeanor and the invasion of Kentucky by Confederate soldiers a felony and prescribing heavy penalties for both. Finally, the legislature authorized the enlistment of 40,000 volunteers to repel invasion, providing also that they should be mustered into the service of the United States and cooperate with the armies of the Union. This was a complete revolution from the anti-coercion resolutions the previous legislature had passed in January. Hitherto, there were no federal forces in Kentucky except the brigade which Lieutenant Nelson had organized at Camp Dick Robinson. The home guards in various counties, though supplied with arms by the federal government, were acting under state militia laws. General Anderson, commanding the military department, which embraced Kentucky, still kept his headquarters at Cincinnati, and Lovell H. Russo, a prominent Kentuckian engaged in organizing a brigade of Kentuckians had purposely made his camp on the Indiana side of the Ohio River. 
Nevertheless, President Lincoln, the governors of Ohio and Indiana, and the various military commanders had for months been ready to go to the assistance of the Kentucky Unionists whenever the necessity should arise. Even if the neutral attitude of Kentucky had not been brought to an end by the advance of the Confederate forces, it would have been by that of the Federals. A point had been reached where further inaction was impossible. Three days before General Pillow occupied Hickman, Fremont sent General Grant to southeastern Missouri to concentrate the several federal detachments, drive out the enemy, and destroy a rumored rebel battery at Belmont. His order says finally, it is intended in connection with all these movements to occupy Columbus, Kentucky as soon as possible. It was in executing a part of this order that the gunboats sent to Belmont extended their reconnaissance down the river and discovered the advance of the Confederates on the Kentucky shore. An unexpected delay in the movement of one of Grant's detachments occurred at the same time, and that commander with military intuition postponed the continuance of the local operations in Missouri and instead prepared an expedition into Kentucky, which became the initial step of his brilliant and fruitful campaign in that direction a few months later. He saw that Columbus, his primary objective point, was lost for the present, but he also perceived that another of perhaps equal strategical value let lay within his grasp, though clearly there was no time to be wasted in seizing it. The gunboat reconnaissance on the Mississippi River, which revealed the rebel occupation of Kentucky, was begun on September 4th. On the following day, General Grant, having telegraphed the information to Fremont and to the Kentucky legislature, hurriedly organized an expedition of two gunboats, 1,800 men, 16 cannon for batteries, and a supply of provisions and ammunition on transports. Taking personal command, he started with the expedition from Cairo at midnight of the 5th and proceeded up the Ohio River to the town of Paducah at the mouth of the Tennessee, where he arrived on the morning of the 6th. A contraband trade with the rebels by means of small steamboats plying on the Tennessee and Cumberland rivers had called special attention to the easy communication between this point and central Tennessee. He landed without opposition and took possession, making arrangements to fortify and permanently hold the place, having done which he returned to Cairo the same afternoon to report his advance and forward reinforcements. The importance of the seizure was appreciated by the rebels, for on the 13th of September, Buckner wrote to Richmond, Our possession of Columbus is already neutralized, by that of Paducah. The culmination of affairs in Kentucky had been carefully watched by the authorities in Washington. From a conference with President Lincoln, Anderson returned on September 1st 
to Cincinnati, taking with him two subordinates of exceptional ability, Brigadier Generals W.T. Sherman and George H. Thomas, both destined to great usefulness and fame. A delegation of prominent Kentuckians met him to set forth the critical condition of their state. He dispatched Sherman to solicit help from Fremont and the governors of Indiana and Illinois, and a week later moved his headquarters to Louisville, also sending Thomas to Camp Dick Robinson to take direction of affairs in that quarter. By the time Sherman returned from his mission, the crisis had developed itself. The appearance of Polk's forces at Columbus, the action of the legislature, the occupation of Paducah by Grant, and the threatening rumors from Buckner's camp created a high degree of excitement and apprehension. On the 16th of September, Anderson reported Zala Coffer's invasion through Cumberland Gap, upon which the president telegraphed him to assume active command in Kentucky at once. Added to this, there came to Louisville on the 18th the positive news of Buckner's advance to Bowling Green. This information set all central Kentucky in a military ferment for the widely published announcement that the state guards, Buckner's secession militia, would meet at Lexington on September 20 to have a camp drill under supervision of Breckinridge, Humphrey, Marshall, and other leaders seemed too plainly coincident with the triple invasion to be designed for a mere holiday. Arising at Lexington and a junction with Salikoffer might end in a march upon Frankfurt, the capital, to disperse the legislature. A simultaneous advance by Buckner in force and the capture of Louisville would, in a brief campaign, complete the subjugation of Kentucky to the rebellion. There remains no record to show whether or not such a plan was among the movements in advance of the governor's action, which Buckner discussed with Jefferson Davis on September 3 at Richmond. The bare possibility roused the Unionists of Kentucky to vigorous action. With an evident distrust of Governor McGoffin, a caucus of the Union members of the legislature assumed quasi-executive authority and through the presiding officers of the two houses requested General Thomas at Camp Dick Robinson to send a regiment fully prepared for a fight to Lexington in advance of the advertised camp drill of the state guards, also promising that the home guards should rally in force to support it. Thomas ordered the movement, and in spite of numerous obstacles, Colonel Thomas E. Bramlett brought his regiment to the Lexington fairground on the night of the 19th of September. His advent was so sudden that he came near making important arrests. John C. Breckinridge, Humphrey Marshall, and other leaders were present, but being warned, fled in different directions, and the camp drill, shorn of its guiding spirits, proved powerless for the mischievous ends which had evidently been intended. 
At Louisville, General Anderson lost no time in an effort to meet Buckner's advance. There were no organized troops in the city, but the brigade Rousseau had been collecting on the Indiana shore was hastily called across the river and joined to the Louisville Home Guards, making in all some 2,500 men who were sent out by the railroad towards Nashville under the personal command of Sherman. An expedition of the enemy had burned the important railroad bridges, apparently, however, with the simple object of creating delay. Nevertheless, Sherman went on and occupied Muldrow's Hill, where he was soon reinforced, for the utmost efforts had been used by the governors of Ohio and Indiana to send to the help of Kentucky every available regiment. If Buckner meditated the capture of Louisville, this show of force caused him to pause. But he remained firm at Bowling Green, increasing his army, and ready to take part in whatever movement events might render feasible. No serious or decisive conflicts immediately followed these various moves on the military chessboard. They served merely to define the hostile frontier, with Polk at Columbus, Buckner at Bowling Green, and Zala Koffer in front of Cumberland Gap, the Confederate frontier was practically along the northern Tennessee line. The Union line ran irregularly through the center of Kentucky. One direct result was rapidly to eliminate the armed secessionists. Humphrey Marshall, Breckinridge, and others who had set up rebel camps hastened with their followers within the protection of the Confederate line. Before further operations occurred, a change of Union commanders took place. The excitement, labors, and responsibilities proved too great for the physical strength of General Anderson. Relieved at his own request on October 8, he relinquished the command to General Sherman, who was designated by General Scott to succeed him. The new and heavy duties which fell upon him were by no means to Sherman's liking. I am forced into the command of this department against my will, he wrote. Looking at his field with a purely professional eye, the disproportion between the magnitude of his task and the immediate means for its accomplishment oppressed him like a nightmare. There were no troops in Kentucky when he came. The recruits sent from other states were gradually growing into an army, but as yet without drill, equipment, or organization. Kentucky itself was in a curious transition. By vote of her people and her legislature, she had decided to adhere to the Union. But as a practical incident of war, many of her energetic and adventurous young men drifted to southern camps, while the Union property holders and heads of families were unfit or unwilling immediately to enlist in active service to sustain the cause they had espoused. The home guards called into service for ten days generally refused to extend their term. The arms furnished them became scattered and if not seized or stolen by young secession recruits and carried to the enemy were with difficulty recovered for use. Now that the general government had assumed command and the state had ordered an army, many neighborhoods felt privileged to call for protection 
rather than furnish a quota for offense and even where they were ready to serve the enlistment of the state volunteers recently authorized by the legislature had yet scarcely begun about the middle of october mr cameron secretary of war returning from a visit to fremont passed through louisville and held a military consultation with sherman i remember taking a large map of the united states writes sherman and assuming the people of the whole south to be in rebellion that our task was to subdue them showed that mcclellan was on the left having a frontage of less than one hundred miles and fremont on the right about the same whereas i the centre had from the big sandy to paducah over three hundred miles of frontier that mcclellan had a hundred thousand men fremont sixty thousand whereas to me had only been allotted about eighteen thousand i argued that for the purpose of defense we should have sixty thousand men at once and for offense would need two hundred thousand before we were done mr cameron who still lay on the bed threw up his hands and exclaimed great god where are they to come from i asserted that there were plenty of men at the north ready and willing to come if he would only accept their services for it was notorious that regiments had been formed in all the northwestern states whose services had been refused by the war department on the ground that they would not be needed we discussed all these matters fully in the most friendly spirit, and I thought I had aroused Mr. Cameron to a realization of the great war that was before us and was in fact upon us. While recognizing many of the needs which Sherman pointed out, the Secretary could not immediately promise him any great augmentation of his force complaints and requests of this character were constantly coming to the administration from all the commanders and governors and a letter of president lincoln written in reply to a similar strain of fault-finding from governor morton of indiana plainly indicates why such requirements in all quarters could not be immediately supplied your letter by the hand of Mr. Prunk was received yesterday. I write this letter because I wish you to believe of us, as we certainly believe of you, that we are doing the very best we can. You do not receive arms from us as fast as you need them, but it is because we have not near enough to meet all the pressing demands, and we are obliged to share around what we have, sending the larger share to the points which appear to need them most. We have great hope that our own supply will be ample before long, so that you and all others can have as many as you need. I see an article in an Indianapolis newspaper denouncing me for not answering your letter sent by a special messenger two or three weeks ago. I did make what I thought the best answer I could to that letter. As I remember, it asked for ten heavy guns to be distributed with some troops at Lawrenceburg, Madison, New Albany, and Evansville and I ordered the guns and directed you to send the troops if you had them. As to Kentucky, you do not estimate that state as more important than I do, but I am compelled to watch all points. While I write this, I am, if not in range, at least in hearing of cannon shot. 
from an army of enemies more than one hundred thousand strong i do not expect them to capture this city but i know they would if i were to send the men and arms from here to defend louisville of which there is not a single hostile armed soldier within forty miles nor any force known to be moving upon it from any distance it is true the army in our front may make a half circle around southward and move on louisville but when they do we will make a half circle around northward and meet them and in the meantime we will get up what forces we can from other sources to also meet them i hope zollicoffer has left cumberland gap though i fear he has not because if he has i rather infer he did it because of his dread of camp dick robinson reinforced from cincinnati moving on him than because of his intention to move on louisville but if he does go round and reinforce buckner let dick robinson come round and reinforce sherman and the thing is substantially as it was when zollicoffer left cumberland gap i state this as an illustration for in fact i think if the gap is left open to us dick robinson should take it and hold it while indiana and the vicinity of louisville in kentucky can reinforce sherman faster than zollicoffer can buckner the conjectures of the president proved substantially correct moreover great as was the need of arms for union regiments the scarcity among the rebels was much greater of the thirty thousand stands which johnston asked for when he assumed command the rebel war department could only send him one thousand ammunition and supplies were equally wanting he called out fifty thousand volunteers from tennessee mississippi and arkansas but reinforcements from this and other sources were slow his greatest immediate help came by transferring major general william j hardy with his division from missouri to bowling green if as sherman surmised the concentration of his detachments would have enabled him to make a successful march on louisville he was unwilling to take the risk the contingency upon which the rebel invasion was probably based the expected rising in kentucky had completely failed we have received but little accession he wrote to richmond to our ranks since the confederate forces crossed the line in fact no such enthusiastic demonstration as to justify any movements not warranted by our ability to maintain our own communications the kentuckians still come in small squads wrote one of his recruiting brigadiers i have induced the most of them to go in for the war this requires about three speeches a day when thus stirred up they go almost to a man since i have found that i can't be a general i have turned recruiting agent and sensation speaker for the brief period that i shall remain for the president johnston's policy was purely defensive he directed cumberland gap to be fortified and completed the works at columbus to meet the probable flotilla from the north supposed to carry two hundred heavy guns while buckner was vigorously admonished to hold on to bowling green he made this order when buckner had six thousand men but even when that number was doubled after the arrival of hardy 
Johnston was occupied with calculations for defense and was asking for further reinforcements. End of chapter 3